So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. This morning we're going to be um, zooming in on verses 3 to 7, but I'm going to read for us from verses 1 all the way to verse 11. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Father, make your word a swift word passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip and conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish that for which it is given. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We live in a culture that has sought, by all attempts, to undermine the idea of objective truth, the idea of the objective good. There is no such thing, objectively speaking, as the good, the true, and the beautiful. It's not the truth, but your truth. It's not what's morally right, but what you personally value. In other words, truth and falsehood have no real meaning, and the same is true of good and evil. You have your truth, and I have my truth, and it doesn't matter that our own truths contradict each other. What matters is that we tolerate each other's personal truths, because, well, it's, it's my truth and it's your truth. We are so morally bankrupt as a society that the two highest values of our culture are consent and tolerance. Our society is extremely passionate about tolerance to the point 
that the only way it's appropriate to be intolerant is when people insist that certain beliefs and values are right and others are wrong. In other words, it's appropriate to be intolerant of those who claim there is such thing as truth and goodness and we as humans ought to conform ourselves to that truth and goodness. You see, if the Apostle Paul was a modern man, convinced of the progressive secular ideas of our day, he probably would have written to Timothy and told him uh, to make room for diversity of thought in the life of the church in Ephesus. He would have instructed Timothy to make sure everyone's ideas were valued and heard and that no idea is greater than another. He would have probably told Timothy, don't worry about these other individuals teaching different doctrines than what you teach because, well, in the end, we're all children of God and loved by him and, and who's to know whose doctrine is actually right? But thanks be to God, Paul was not a modern man convinced of progressive ideals. And even if he were here today, he would still not be convinced of such ways of thought, for he would see the insanity for what it is. Paul is offensive to the modern man because he unintentionally pushes against the cultural narratives and values of modern society. He tells us that truth actually matters, and it ought to be fought for and pursued. He tells us that, that tolerance, in the way that we modern folk think of it, is actually not a worthy value whatsoever. He believes in something greater than mere tolerance. He believes in love. A love that is so vastly different than the definition our society places upon it. He believes in a love that is gentle, but also stern. A love that demands and exhorts. A love that doesn't coddle immaturity and stupidity, but exhorts and seeks the good of another. A love that is based in truth and goodness. And we see this throughout 1 Timothy in the instructions that Paul gives to young Timothy. Paul is so concerned about truth and godliness that he instructs Timothy to not tolerate false doctrine and certain persons who seek the lead to lead the church astray. It's so important to Paul that it's the first thing he addresses in the letter after he gives his greeting. In fact, it was so important to Paul that before Paul had even written this letter, he had at one point urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus when he had left for Macedonia. As he says in verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. And then he gives the reason why he had urged Timothy. So that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we don't know who these certain persons were exactly, but Paul did warn the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20 that fierce wolves would rise up from even their own midst. As Acts 20, 29 to 30 says, which Josh read for us, 
I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Now, whether these certain persons are specifically who Paul was referring to in Acts 20, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that Paul felt it necessary to write Timothy and the church in Ephesus because there were certain persons teaching different doctrine and devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Paul again alludes to these certain persons at the end of the letter and demonstrates that they were consumed with a desire to quarrel and cause controversy. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, so there's the word again, different doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction amongst people who are deprived in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They craved controversy. They loved to quarrel. Also, Paul tells us in verse 7 of chapter 1 that they desired to be teachers of the law, which in and of itself was a good thing. But Paul then says that they were completely ignorant and deluded. And so Paul reminds Timothy of the charge he had been given. Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So what is it exactly that these certain persons or false teachers were promoting or teaching? Well, we don't actually know for sure. There are clues in the letter itself that can give us somewhat of an idea. Uh, For one, it seems that they were promoting some kind of asceticism. So uh, Paul alludes to this in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, and then here it is, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So they were in some sense promoting asceticism, that is, forbidding people from experiencing the good gifts that God has given us in this life. Now, this is just an important side note. Here's one of the clues that will help you know if you're getting involved with a group that is cultic or outright heretical. If there's a focus on forbidding external things like food and drink, it's probably something you don't want to be a part of. So these false teachers or certain persons were promoting these forms of asceticism, but Paul also alludes to the fact that they were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, we're not totally sure what's going on here, but but what does seem evident is there was an obsession with genealogies, especially amongst the Jewish Christians, 
because so much of one's identity was tied to the genealogies. Like, uh, when you and I, when we read the genealogies in the Old Testament, if you read them, it's somewhat insignificant for us. But for a Jewish person, especially in the ancient world, it was extremely important. To the point where it seems that there were myths that were produced and created about some of the people in the genealogies. Now, why were these certain persons captivated and devoted to this? Well, we're not totally sure, but it's possible that this was just another way for the Jewish believers to show their superiority. I mean, if one could trace their ancestry back to Moses, one could argue for their own importance. See, they were placing their confidence most likely in their ancestry rather than the gospel of Jesus Christ, which really removes all of that anyway. Maybe it was a way to one-up their Gentile brothers and sisters. Oh, yeah, you're in the New Covenant. But Moses is my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. We just don't fully know. But here's what is clear. They were teaching different doctrine, and they had devoted their time, their minds, and their energy to these endless genealogies. Now, when Paul says different doctrine, it implies that there was some kind of already affirmed doctrine within the church. That is, there was already specific beliefs and convictions that the church had believed, and Paul's saying that these certain persons are teaching contrary to what we believe. As John Stott says, Paul clearly indicates that there is a norm of doctrine from which the false teachers had deviated. It is variously defined in the pastorals. It is called the faith, the truth, the sound doctrine, the teaching, and the good deposit. In nearly every one of these expressions, the noun is preceded by the definite article indicating that already a body of doctrine existed which was an agreed standard by which all teaching could be tested and judged. It was the teaching of Jesus Christ and of his apostles. Paul alludes to this in 1 Timothy 6, which I read earlier. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. But most likely, this different doctrine wasn't necessarily outright heresy. Like, these certain persons probably weren't denying the divinity and humanity of Christ. They probably weren't denying his death as a sacrifice for sins or even his resurrection. What seems to be the real issue was that they were elevating these insignificant and unimportant ideas to the place of first importance. Elevating these insignificant things at the expense of what truly matters. You see, sometimes the most dangerous thing in the life of a church isn't outright heresy but elevating things to a place they ought not be elevated to. Gerald Bray captures this well when he says, 
As far as we can tell, the false teachers were not denying the divinity of Christ or the message of the gospel. Instead of attacking the fundamentals of Christian belief, they were distracting the congregation by getting them caught up in secondary matters that led to endless and pointless discussions that helped nobody and solved nothing. Paul was concerned that the church members might be led to think that the study of genealogies was of the essence of the faith, when in fact it was peripheral at best and fanciful at worst. This kind of tendency is far more prevalent than outright heresy. See, for whatever reason, we humans in general, all of us, have this capability of obsessing over things that are not all that important while neglecting things of first importance. This is why Augustine argued that true virtue was the proper ordering of loves, placing things in their proper place. But this tendency, this tendency to obsess over things that are not of first importance manifests in the church as well. And hear me, it can be more destructive and more dangerous to a church than outright heresy. Let me quote for you again from Gerald Bray, who has some really helpful observations on this. What was happening at Ephesus was typical of a phenomenon that repeats itself with depressing frequency in the life of the church. Open heresy is relatively rare, but subtle distractions are quite common. Those who are led astray in this way are convinced that they are doing something worthwhile. And superficially, they may seem to be justified in this. After all, the Ephesian genealogists could claim to be following the example of Scripture and doing no more than interpreting it. In itself, this was no more evil than plain Scrabble using only words found in the Bible. It could even be argued that it sharpened the mind to perceive details that might otherwise be overlooked. But at the same time, this kind of activity lost the plot because it had no conception of the underlying purpose for which the law had been given. Because of that, it was basically pointless and ultimately harmful in that it, it, it obscured what really mattered and lost the heart of the gospel message in a mass of trivial footnotes. This was the problem in Ephesus. But this so easily becomes the problem in any church. Certain persons begin devoting themselves to things that are not of first importance but they expect everyone else to share the same passion they have for these less important things. They give these things devotion that should be given to Christ and the gospel alone. Now, according to Paul, what were some of the problems as a result of what these individuals were doing? Well, for one, he tells us in verse 4 that their activity was promoting speculation rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. 
The way that they were using the law, the Old Testament, was producing speculation. Now that word speculation in the Greek is probably stronger. It's not just speculation, but controversy. Their activities were leading to speculation and controversy. And because they were devoted to this, the stewardship from God that is by faith was being neglected. It wasn't being promoted. Now that word stewardship alludes to God's revealed plan of redemption for his church. And this plan has been entrusted to his people. It is the stewardship of the gospel. And we must respond to this plan of redemption by faith and steward it according to God's ways. Our focus and energy should be devoted to this stewardship, not to myths and endless genealogies that lead to speculations and controversies. The other problem with these false teachers was their speculations and controversies were not producing what the goal of right doctrine was meant to produce. You see this in verse 5. In contrast to their, their producing speculation and controversies, Paul says the charge that we've been given from God has as its aim love. Verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. This stewardship from God has as its goal, has as its aim, love. Love for God and love for one another. You see, Paul wasn't concerned about right theological doctrine as an end in itself, though right theological doctrine is important. He was primarily concerned about what right theological doctrine produced. Paul's ultimate purpose as a servant of Jesus Christ was to produce an atmosphere of love within the church. Love for God and love for one another and love for our fellow man. And these false teachers were undermining this goal with their speculations and their controversies. You see, all doctrine is meant to deepen our love. Christian love has many different facets to it, but fundamentally, Christian love is to will the good of another, to pursue the good of another. See, a proper understanding of God, who he is and what he has done, is meant to produce in us love for him that then spills over to fellow image bearers, especially those of us who share in the love of God. Let me illustrate this with one simple example in the scriptures. In 1 John 4, 10 to 11, John says this, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So I want you to see this. John is articulating a theological, a doctrinal truth about who God is. That despite the fact that we did not love God, God loved us. And then he explains how he demonstrated that love and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, he came into this world, the son of God, died on the cross, bearing the curse of sin in our place so that the justice of God would pass over us. 
and the mercy of God would be given to us. So John gives doctrine here. This is the doctrine. This is what he knows is true about God. That God is love and that he loved us despite the fact that we did not love him. That's the theological truth. And then he concludes this. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see that? The proper doctrine of God, proper understanding of who God is, then informs, guides us on what we're called to do. Love one another. See, if God was not love, Paul would not call us to love one another. His doctrine of God informs, guides, instructs how we ought to relate to one another. And that's why Paul says, the aim of our charge is love. Now after Paul tells us what the goal is, love, he then provides three fundamental pillars that are necessary in order for us to be people of love. He gives us a, a triad, and there, there is, as Bray says, a, an ascending sequence here. Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues or comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. These three things, Paul says, produces love. Love flows from these three things. And I would argue that these three things build on one another. So let's, let's briefly look at these three things. First, a pure heart. We know that the heart, biblically speaking, refers to the seat of both the mind, will, and emotions. It's, it's a word used to describe really the whole person. So the one who has a pure heart is one whose whole person is conformed to the will and ways of God. Think Sermon on the Mount. A good conscience. A good conscience describes one who is not weighed down by residual guilt. Which means for one to truly have a good conscience, they must be one who has experienced the forgiveness of sins in Jesus and be walking in that forgiveness and according to that forgiveness. A sincere faith. A sincere faith is one that is genuine. That is, there's no hypocrisy. It's a life walking in integrity towards God and man. I love how Gerald Bray puts it. An unfeigned faith is one that is sincere in all respects and that maintains its integrity in the face of challenges and temptations that inevitably afflict those who believe. It is not a good time feeling, but an inner conviction that withstands the tests it has to face and triumphs over adversity. It also implies, as the word faith always does in the epistle, a correct understanding of the truth of the gospel or what we would now call orthodoxy. These three things are prerequisites to love. These three things in the life of a believer and in the church will lead or should lead to an outpouring of love for God and one another. And when this happens, when, when love is overflowing amongst believers, we see the true manifestation of the power of the gospel in the midst of the church. 
This is our aim. This is the charge that Paul and Timothy had been given. But these false teachers who were teaching different doctrine and were spending their days looking at myths and genealogies, claiming to be experts in the law, they swerved from these things and wandered into vain discussion. As Paul says in verse 6, certain persons by swerving from these, swerving from what? Swerving from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart, have wandered away into vain discussion, fruitless, foolish discussion. This should serve as a warning for all of us. Don't think that you're not susceptible from swerving from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. And catch this, one of the ways this happens, this swerving, is when we begin to devote ourselves to things that are not worthy of such devotion. We're susceptible to swerving and wandering when we make lesser things as important or even more important than primary things. Now, in verse 7, he gives a further description of these certain persons. He shows their desire, which is to be teachers of the law, but also states how arrogantly ignorant they were. They neither understood what they were saying or the things about which they made confident assertions. There was a blindness to their own limitations and ignorance. And let's be honest, we are all susceptible to this. I mean, it really is amazing to see how strong people's opinions can be on a given topic when they've done such little study and thought of such topic. We always feel like we should have an opinion on something even though we haven't spent even 10 minutes to study such topic. We all are prone to this. Now to end off, I want us to think about some of the implications for us as individuals and as a church of what Paul says here in these verses. One, I think we need to think about what some of those things are in our own day that have the potential of promoting speculation, controversy, and leading people to swerve and wander from the truth. See, I think one of the reasons why Paul isn't specific on what was going on in Ephesus is because these kinds of things are prevalent in every age. But they manifest differently depending on the cultural moment. Like, none of us here are going to cause controversy and speculation over genealogies and myths. None of us are going to swerve from the faith due to our devotion to myths and genealogies. But what are some potential things that could lead to that in our day? Well, I think there's both theological and social issues, and there's probably many that haven't come to my mind. But I think Christians who get up, get caught up speculating about end time realities, who the Antichrist is, what the mark of the beast is, the the timeline for Jesus' return can have a tendency to speculate and cause controversy. And it really doesn't promote the stewardship given to us from God, nor does it produce love. 
They are more devoted to figuring out when Christ will return rather than being ready for Christ's return and helping others be ready as well. They're more devoted to exposing the works of Satan than being the kind of person who can withstand the works of Satan. I think social issues can lead to these same things. I have seen many professing Christians who have swerved and wandered from the faith over different social justice issues. Because I don't think that they have a solid theological foundation to help them process the social issues of our fallen society, nor to think through them biblically. And they get consumed by these things. It's the next big thing to fight. Like, I'm always amazed when people talk about what the church should or shouldn't be doing, while they've never thought all that hard about what a church actually is, biblically speaking. Spend some time studying the Bible and what the Bible says a church is and what a church should be doing before you start making demands of what the church should do and not do. I think over the last three years, there have been Christians who have devoted way too much of their time, energy, and mind to political things. And I'm not saying these things aren't important, but they're not of first importance. And Christians have made it seem like at times that these things are more important than the stewardship of the gospel that we've been given from God himself. Like these, thrust, these last three years, in my opinion, are a great picture of what it looks like when Christians devote themselves to things that promote speculation and controversy rather than the stewardship of God that is by faith. Andrew Fuller, the great uh, Baptist theologian of the 18th century, was deeply concerned in his own day about how many professing Christians had actually shipwrecked their faith due to, due to their overzealous commitment to politics. Dr. Haken says that Fuller's days were like ours, filled with war and revolution, riot and cries for political reform, and some professing Christians developed an inordinate passion for politics. And this is what Fuller had said about what he observed. Their whole heart has been engaged in this pursuit. It has been their meat and their drink. And this being the case, it is not surprising that they have become indifferent to religion. For these things cannot consist with each other. It is not only contrary to the whole tenor of the New Testament, but tends in its own nature to eat up true religion. Christians are soldiers under the king of kings. Their object should be to conquer all ranks and degrees of men to the obedience of faith. But to do this, it is necessary that they avoid all those entanglements and dispute, disputes which retard their main design. If a wise man wishes to gain over a nation to any great and worthy object, he does not enter into their little differences nor embroil himself in their party contentions, but bearing goodwill to all seeks the general good. By these means he is respected by all and all are ready to hear what he has to offer. Such should be the wisdom of Christians. There is enmity enough for us to encounter without unnecessarily 
adding to it. Now that being said, Dr. Haken does add this about Fuller. Yet Fuller was also a political realist who knew that politics was essential to human existence. He gave his wholehearted support to those seeking to abolish the slave trade. He's a political realist. He knows that it's necessary, but he won't be consumed by it. He serves the king of kings. You see, there are a lot of different things that have the potential to keep us from focusing our attention and our devotion on the stewardship that we've been given from God. And for each of us, it could be something different. It could be something I didn't say. And we need to be aware of this and make sure that we don't allow anything to consume our devotion over the stewardship that we've been given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because not only is there potential for you to swerve from the faith, but you can also potentially lead others astray unintentionally. And we need to be aware of this. Secondly, another implication from Paul's instruction here is that sometimes those in spiritual authority need to use their authority to silence people. And that word sometimes is important. Paul charged Timothy with the instruction of telling certain persons to stop teaching different doctrines. And I believe as members of one another, we also have this responsibility. And especially as elders. Sometimes, sometimes it is necessary for us to look a person in the face and say, you will not be allowed to teach that here because all it does is promote speculation. It doesn't produce love. It's contrary to sound doctrine enough. Like if a person started coming to our church and promoting things that are contrary to sound doctrine, Jim and I won't look past that as elders. And if your elders started doing this, you ought not tolerate that as a church. We believe that truth matters. Truth has eternal significance and we must seek the truth and uphold the truth as best as we can. And there are times where one must take a stand, even if it's reluctantly. Thirdly, the real test of orthodoxy and Christian maturity is love. Love for God and one another. If the aim of Paul's charge is love, then the way we determine where we are at in our faith is by the depth of our love. Like, you may be able to articulate theological truth, but if you have not love, it doesn't matter. I mean, you may be able to explain to people all the social and political issues of our day, but if your love isn't growing or if it's declining, then who cares what knowledge you have concerning the issues of our day? And this isn't the only place where Paul speaks of the supremacy of love in the Christian life. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, 
I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Think about that. You may be able to articulate the deepest levels of knowledge on the face of the earth by a human being. You may be able to understand and articulate everything that is happening in our world. But if you have not love, you are absolutely nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If this doesn't make you tremble a little bit, and begin examining your life to really ask, am I a loving person in a biblical sense? Then I don't know what will. Let me ask us a serious and very important question. Over these last three years, with COVID and the social unrest and the political corruption, and I could go on listing things in our society, over these last three years, has your love for God and for others deepened or has it diminished? Has it weakened? Are you a more loving person now than you were three years ago? Or are you a more angry person now? Hateful person? Selfish person? Are you eager to love and serve others or are you continually devoting yourself to insignificant things in light of eternity and promoting speculation and controversy? And if that be you, here is my plea and exhortation to you. Remove the things in your life that are doing this to your soul. Because if you don't, hear me, there is potential that you will swerve and wander from a sincere faith, a good conscience, and a pure heart. And then give your mind and your time and your heart to the stewardship that we've been given from God that is by faith and produces God-glorifying love. Let's pray. Father, it is baffling that you would entrust us with the stewardship of your gospel. We are not worthy. We do not love as we ought. And we focus on other things rather than treasuring the most sacred gift that we could possibly imagine, the gift of the gospel, the gift of salvation in your precious Son. Forgive us for forgetting and forsaking this most precious gift and help us to steward your plan and your salvation properly. Help us to be devoted to growing in sincerity of faith and developing a good conscience and a pure heart so that here at Royal York, Love would overflow and abound. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.